Good morning, Crowd family. I hope you all are doing well. Happy, happy Sunday. Listen, I want to take the time right now to thank all of you who responded to our poll on our church app and email regarding our in-car church services in our church parking lot. And so far from all the responses we received, 57% of you said you would attend. 30% of you said online works for you, which is totally cool. And 13% of you said at this point you're undecided. Now, if you have not yet responded, please respond as soon as you can. That would be greatly appreciated. I will make an announcement next Sunday to announce the date, time, and uh, any other details regarding our in-car church service. So please continue to keep the leadership in prayer as we plan for this. If you have your Bibles with you, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 6 through 21 is today's text. Again, 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Uh, verses 6 through 21 is today's text. We're now in part 10, part 10 of our series, Undivided. Now, before we dive into the text, I want to do a quick review from last week's text, verses 1 through 5 of this chapter, chapter 4, and the focus was on the faithful minister. And you see, the Corinthian believers were not really understanding what true leadership in the church consisted of. I mean, if they did, if they did, if they knew that, they wouldn't have been divided up in into these groups or these factions or these cliques. And so what Paul does is he describes to the church, he, what he does, he gives them a proper perspective on what Christian leadership in the church consists of. And what he does, he shows them the characteristics of the faithful minister of God. And then what he does, he begins with their identity. And there he says they are servants of Christ. They are under rowers of Jesus Christ. And, and not just servants of Jesus Christ, but also stewards or, or managers of the secret things of God. And you see, friends, Jesus, the master, has entrusted his ministers with his truth, and they are to faithfully teach it and, and preach it. Now, remember, the church is the house, Christ is the master, and the ministers are the stewards. And then Paul points out the requirement. Look at verse 2 with me, verse 2. Now he says this, Now it is required that those who have been given a trust must, what? Prove faithful. So the complete requirement that God has for, for a, a preacher and a teacher is to be faithful. In other words, trustworthy, to be dependable, to be reliable in what he has called them to do, and that is to be faithful and reliable and trustworthy, dependable and consistent in preaching and teaching his word. And then Paul points out three groups who evaluated the minister, and the minister was evaluated by others, by himself, and also by God, and that only God's evaluation counts, because only he can judge fairly, only he alone can light the things hidden in darkness, he alone knows our motives, he alone has a, a clear view into our hearts. And so all ministers, all ministers will be judged by God, and he will bring out the secrets and the motivations of their hearts to see whether their ministry was done to exalt self or to exalt God, whether it was to please men or to please God, uh, to see whether uh, they would be rewarded or not rewarded. This now brings us to today's text, and the title of my message is Puffed Up and Proud. Everyone say that, Puffed Up and Proud. And what this does, this describes the Corinthian believers. Pride was an issue in the Corinthian church. Now, the world, the world that we live in, doesn't recognize pride as a problem. In fact, they exalt it, they, they celebrate it. To them, pride is not a vice, but a virtue. Well, God's word makes it very clear that pride is not a virtue, but a vice. And friends, I got to tell you, it, it's pride that can disqualify us from so much. It was pride that drove Lucifer out of God's presence. It was pride that drove Adam out of the garden. It, it was pride that took King Saul out of the kingdom. It was pride that took King Nebuchadnezzar out of all Babylonian society for seven years. It was pride that took Haman out of the court of Persia. Listen, friends, pride is sin. Pride is sin. Pride is destructive. Pride destroys marriages. Pride destroys families. Pride destroys friendships. Pride destroys churches. Pride destroys businesses. Uh, pride can get in the way of making rational decisions. Pride is the root of most all evil. That Proverbs 16, chapter 16, verse 18, Proverbs 16, 18 says, Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before, come on, we know this, right? Before a, a fall. Proverbs chapter 6, 
verses 16 through 19, Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 through 19 says, There are six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him. And first on the list, listen now, is haughty eyes. Haughty eyes, prideful, proudful eyes. Then he goes on to say, A lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises uh, wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and a person who stirs up conflict in the community. C.S. Lewis said this, A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. Andrew Murray said this, Pride must die in you, or nothing of heaven can live in you. And James, in James chapter 4, verse 6, James 4, 6, James said, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the, say it, the humble. You see, pride was an issue in the Corinthian church that they were puffed up with pride. Some of them had not yet learned humility. And so here in the text, what Paul does is Paul confronts them on their prideful attitudes, their prideful hearts. Four points from the text. If you're ready, say yes. Come on, say yes. Point number one is this. Point number one is the contrast. Write that down. Say that. The contrast. The contrast. Now follow me here. In verses 6 through 8, verses 6 through 8, Paul points out the contrast between pride and humble service. I'm going to say it again. Paul points out in verses 6 through 8, Paul points out the contrast between pride and humble service. So let's look at verse 6 of the text here. He says, Now, brothers, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit. So I want to stop there. Paul used himself and Apollos as examples to demonstrate that, that all ministers are instruments in the hands, in God's hands. They are instruments in God's hands. And Paul's saying, hey, me and Apollos, okay, we are just instruments. That's all we are in God's hands. This is how we see ourselves, Paul's saying. This is exactly how we see ourselves. We're just instruments. Now, now keep in mind, friends, uh, the, the Corinthian church had divided up in, into factions and fan clubs, cliques, and, uh, and groupies following their favorite leaders. And, and, and what Paul has said and what Paul is about to say about himself and Apollos was designed to teach them lessons about humility. Let's read on. So that you may learn from us, love that, you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, do not go beyond what is written. Did you get that? Do not go beyond what is written. In other words, Paul's saying, keep it biblical. Keep it biblical because keeping it biblical is the cure for pride. Keeping it biblical is a cure for the division, the cure for choosing sides. Again, again, they were measuring different pastors and, and teachers by their own personal preferences and prejudices. They were comparing ministers with, with one another. And what Paul is saying is that the only true basis for evaluation is the Word of God. That's it. That which is written. It's the Word of God that clearly reveals what kind of life and service is required of his ministers. So, so Paul, follow me now, Paul says, if, if you keep it biblical, okay, if you keep it biblical, okay, let's read on. Listen what he says. If you do that, let's read on. Then you will not take pride or be puffed up in one man over against the other. He's saying you will stop saying I am of Paul or I am of Apollos or I am against Paul or I am for Apollos or vice versa. He says you will stop taking pride and being one for being 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 for one and against another. Then what Paul does is he, he, he punctures their pride by, by asking them three pointed questions. In fact, you will notice, you will notice Paul's sarcasm here. I, I call this sanctified sarcasm. So, so I want you to follow me here. The first question is found in verse 7a. Verse 7a. And Paul says, For who makes you different from anyone else? In the Greek, that's diakrino. Diakrino, it means to, to separate, to, to make a distinction. It means to, 
to discriminate. And in the text, it's, it's saying this, who distinguishes you above another? Who has separated you from others, making you superior to others? You see, pride led them to think that their little group was superior because they were following, it's not, they were following in their mind a superior leader, which led them to think that they were spiritually superior in their abilities and gifts. The second question is found in verse 7b. Look at that. He says, what do you have that you did not receive? In other words, what abilities or gifts do you have that didn't come from God? And Paul's saying, however you obtained it, it was ultimately the gift of God. Therefore, therefore, okay, you have no grounds, no grounds to think of yourselves as superior to anyone else. Listen, church, no one can say, no one can say that his or her abilities and gifts are really their own. No one can take credit for producing something that was really a gift given to them from God. In John chapter 3, the Gospel of John, in John chapter 3, John the Baptist's disciples were bothered, they were bothered that, that people were following Jesus instead of John, that, 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 pe- that, that, that Jesus was more popular than John. And, and I love what John says in verse 27 of John chapter 3. He says, a person can receive only what is given them from heaven. And then he says this in verse 30, which is classic. It's one of my favorite verses. He says, he, speaking of Jesus, must increase and I must decrease. John got it right. John knew that his gifts and abilities were from God. Got it? He wasn't above God, okay? He knew his place. The third question, the third question is in verse 7c, and Paul says, and if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? So Paul continued excuse me, to, to squash their pride by reminding them that uh, there's no room for boasting in a Christian because everything, everything comes from the hand of a loving, grace-giving, sovereign God. And he tells them, why do you boast as if it were the result of your own effort and skills? You see, they were acting like masters of the house masters of the house rather than like members of the house. So there's a lesson. There's always a lesson, right? And here's the lesson. And the lesson is this, humility. Write that down, humility. Say that. Listen, absolutely, absolutely everything, everything we are and have is due to God's grace. I'm going to say it again. Everything we are and have is due to God's grace. Absolutely everything. Therefore, there's no room for pride. There's no room for conceit. There is no room for a superior attitude in our lives. All that we have has, listen now, has been a gift from God. Therefore, as Christians, humility ought to follow from the knowledge that all we have has been given to us by God because of His grace. Of His grace not because we deserve it or because we earned it. Paul now goes from puncturing their pride to now attempting to rip out their pride by the root. Okay? In verses 8 to 13, in verses 8 to 13, there, as we're going to look at it right now, he points out the contrast between self-exaltation or self-exalting service, between self-exalting service, and sacrificial living. Again, he points out the contrast, verses 8 through 13, points out the contrast between self-exalting service and sacrificial living. And we'll see that he continues, Paul continues with his sanctified sarcasm. Look at verse 8. Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. You have become kings in that without us. How I wish that you really had become kings so that we might be kings with you. 
So Paul, in his sanctified sarcasm, is saying, wow, you've arrived. Wow, you've arrived. You don't need us apostles anymore. I mean, you, you have everything you need. You're rich. You're, you're kings. I mean, and how I really wish, Paul's saying, you were kings because it would be great for us apostles to, to be kings with you and to reign with you. You see, they were, they, the, the Corinthian believers, were very secure, self-sufficient, and self-satisfied because in their pride, they thought they had it made. They thought they had arrived. Look at verse 9. Verse 9, for it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession like men, listen to what he says, like men condemned to die in the arena. We have made, we have been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to men. In the Greek, the word spectacle is theatros. That's where we get our English word theater. So, so let me illustrate to you what, what Paul is saying here, okay? Back in the day, uh, conquering kings would, would ride through the streets of their city, and, and behind them in chains would be the, the, the prisoners of war. And they would, the prisoners of war, would be paraded through the city as spectacles and eventually, eventually led into the theater, the theater, uh, the theatros, where they would be fed to the wild beast or killed by gladiators. Paul is saying, you guys are kings. And how I wish I could reign with you and be important, but we apostles are like those guys in chains. We're headed to the arena. We're headed to, to the theatros and suffer for Christ. That's what Paul's saying. 2 Timothy 3, 12, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, Paul writes this. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, do you want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus? I do. Do you? Well, guess what? If we want to do that, Paul says, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will not, might, will be persecuted. So we should never be surprised when we're being persecuted. Let's move on to verse 10. If you're still with me, say amen. Verse 10, we are fools for Christ, but you are so wise in Christ. You see, to serve Christ, the apostles had to be willing to be called fools by the world. Their devotion for Christ caused the world to think of them as odd and as strange. And Christians, I want to tell you, listen now, I want to tell you, that's how the world views us. The world views us Christians as odd and strange, don't they? Yes, they do. They do. Now, the Corinthians thought they were wise and that their spiritual assessment was favorable, but they were actually ignorant and spiritually pitiful. They were not spiritual giants. They were spiritual infants. Now, if you're saved, say amen. Come on, if you're saved, say amen. Listen, no Christian who lives for Christ will ever get along with the world. They will always, listen, they will always be unpopular with some crowds. Listen now, they, they, they will have people laugh at them, ridicule them, sneer at them, and, and mock them. John 15, John chapter 15, verse 19. John 15, verse 19 says this. Jesus says, if you belong to the world, he says, if you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. If you did, it would love you as its own. Okay, as it is, he says, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. This is what he says. That is why the world hates you. Don't expect the world to love you, guys. Okay, don't expect the world to love you, to accept you. The world will hate you. If they hated Jesus, they'll hate you. The world does not like followers of Christ. Let's read on the, the rest of verse 10. We are weak, but you are strong. So the apostles were weak and, and, in, and in constant need of fellowship with Christ and, and fellowship with the body. They never lost their sense of need. They needed Christ. They needed the body, other believers. But the Corinthians thought themselves strong, needing nothing or no one. They were kind of like 
lone rangers out there doing their own thing. Then he says, you are honored, we are dishonored. The Corinthians were, were objects of honor and praise in the eyes of the world, and the apostles were held in utter contempt. Let's move on, verses 11 through 13. Verses 11 through 13. To this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags. We are brutally treated, brutally treated. We are homeless. Verse 12, we work hard with our own hands. So, so we see, I want to stop there. We see here, uh, at times, the apostles didn't have enough food, didn't have enough drink, didn't have good clothing. They were physically mistreated, didn't have a house, and had to work as an ordinary labor, right? That's what it says. Let's read on. When we are cursed, we bless. Did you get that? When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. Wow. Verse 13. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. Wow. I want to stop there. Who does that sound like? Huh? Who does that sound like? First Peter chapter 2. First Peter chapter 2, verse 23, because it sounds like Jesus. First Peter chapter 2, verse 23, Peter writes this. When they hurled their insults at him, speaking of Jesus, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Wow. Here's a lesson. Here's a lesson. Act like Jesus. Say that. Act like Jesus. When we bless, endure, and answer kindly to others when being mistreated, we are acting in the way Jesus acted. Now, obviously, we, we, we cannot control how people act towards us, but we can control how we react towards them when we're being mistreated. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 44, Matthew 5, verse 44, Jesus said this, Love your enemies, love your enemies, and pray for those who persecute you. Boy, that goes against the, the logic and thinking of the world, doesn't it? Okay? Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Okay? We want to act like Jesus, then we got to do exactly that. Let's read on the rest of verse 13. Up to this moment, we have become the scum of the earth, the refuse of the world. In other words, they're, they're, they're considered, the apostles, they're considered the, the filth of society, the, the vilest of all people. Now listen, friends, while, while the world may look at them, the apostles or Christians in general, as filth, as dung, they found, they had found the answer to life. I found the answer to life. You found the answer to life, right? Paul found the answer to life. Apollos found the answer to life. Peter found the answer to life. And that is who? Jesus Christ. And that's why Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 3, verse 8, Philippians 3, Verse 8, what is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I love what he says. I consider them garbage, rubbish, refuse, filth, that I may gain Christ. Amen? Christ. So we see the stark contrast between the Corinthians and the apostles, right? I mean, the Corinthians were exalted, satisfied, pampered, and prideful. The apostles were working hard, sacrificing, facing abuse, and humble. The, the Corinthians reflected the world. The apostles reflected Jesus Christ. They were living like Jesus. Can someone say amen? So number one is the contrast. Number two is the correction. Write that down. Say that, the correction. The correction. Look at verse 14 with me. Verse 14, if you're still with me, say amen. Verse 14, Paul writes, I am writing this not to shame you, but to warn you. Listen to what he says, but to warn you as my dear children. Got it? I'm going to read that again. I am writing this not to shame you, but to warn you, 
as my dear children. Notice that Paul's sternness in the previous verses is now turned here in this text, verse 14, to tenderness. He tenderly warns, admonishes them. I am writing this not to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. Tenderly warns and admonishes them. And, and, and it, it's what a father does, right? It's what a father does in hopes that his children will see the error of their ways and change. The word in the text carries the idea of, of having a corrective influence on someone while not provoking or embittering. And what it does, it implies counsel and appeal. You see, Paul's desire here isn't to criticize and punish, but to admonish, correct, and to encourage. Let's move on, look at verse 15. Even though you have 10,000 guardians, or your Bibles might render it as tutors, in the Greek that's pedagogi or, or pedagogi, it means guardians or tutors. So even though you have 10,000 guardians or tutors in Christ, you do not have many fathers. So although, although the Corinthians had many tutors, such as Apollos and, and Peter and, and many others, they only had one spiritual father, and that was who? That was Paul. Notice what he says, For in Christ Jesus I became your father through the gospel. Now Paul in chapter 3, and here in this chapter, already said that he was a farmer, a farmer, right? A farmer, a builder, a servant, and a steward. And now he says here that he's a what? A father, a father, a spiritual father. And as a spiritual father, he has the right to lovingly discipline them. Now, friends, he's not doing this because he's mad at them. He's not correcting them because he's mad at them, but because he cares for them, because he loves them. That's what a father does. And part of being a good parent is discipline, Right? I mean, if you truly love your children, you're going to discipline them. And the failure to discipline is to condone bad behaviors, to condone bad activity. What comes to mind is Eli, the, the high priest. And he failed to discipline his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. And, and they ate the meat that came in the Levitical sanctuary. They, they had sexual relations, his sons, with the women at the door of the tabernacle. And guess what? Eli knew this. He knew about this, but never confronted them, never corrected them. And friends, listen now. Not to confront known sin is equivalent to condoning it. Well, Paul is going to confront it. He's going to confront it. He's going to confront the Corinthian church about their sin, about their pride. It's what Paul does. He comes in and simply says, hey, I'm your spiritual father. Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm Papa Paul. I'm your, I'm your spiritual father, and it's time for a little discipline. And he's telling them what you're doing is not right. And, and I, I'm warning you about your pride. Your pride, your pride is killing you. And your pride is killing the church. And, and Paul was able uh, to do this, to, to confront them, because he had a special relationship with the Corinthian believers. He had been the one who had brought them the gospel. He was the one who led them to Jesus Christ. He was the one who, in that sense, fathered, fathered them in the faith. And so just as a good father, just as a good father, he sought to correct them. He sought to discipline them. And not just to correct them and discipline them, but to set the example to them of how to live for Christ. Which brings us right to point number three is the call. Write that down. Say the call. The contrast, the correction, number three is the call. Because here we see the call to follow consistent spiritual modeling. The call to follow consistent Spiritual modeling. Look at verse 16. Are you still with me? Say amen. Verse 16. Therefore, Paul says, I urge you to imitate me. Now, Paul wasn't saying imitate me because I'm doing such a great job or because I'm such a great person. He was saying, imitate Christ in me. In chapter 11, verse 1 of 1 Corinthians of this book, chapter 11, verse 1, Paul says, 
follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. In other, words, be, in other words, be imitators of me, he says, just as I also am of Christ. Do what I do. Listen, do what I do, he says, if it matches up with the character and lifestyle of Jesus Christ. That's what he's saying. There's a lesson. Here's a lesson. Be imitators of Jesus Christ. Write that down. Say that. Be imitators of Jesus Christ. Now, friends, this call is not just for apostles. It's not just for pastors. It's not just for teachers. It's not just for the Corinthian believers. It's for all Christians. All Christians. It's for me, for you, for all believers. Now, what I love about Paul was that he, he didn't shy away from scrutiny. He knew that his, his life was being watched by those that he ministered to. And he taught not only by his words, but also by his, his walk. He, he lived, I love this about Paul, he lived in such a way as to adorn the gospel that he preached and could urge his brothers and sisters in Christ to not only do as he said, but also to do as he did. To do as he did. Look at verse 17. For this reason I have sent you Timothy. Remember Timothy? My son whom I love, who was faithful in the Lord. And this is what Paul says. He will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. You get that? Listen, like Paul, we should be imitatable. Imitatable. In your life, in your life, do people see Christ? Hmm? Are you imitating the life of Christ? Hmm? Question, how do we learn to imitate Jesus Christ? How? Read the word. Get in the Word, read the Word, because everything in the Word points to Him. Points to Him. Also ask God to send people into our lives who also, listen, want to imitate Jesus. And you see, and you see by spending time with them, friends, we can encourage one another in learning to live like Jesus. So spend time in the Word and spend time with others who want to imitate Jesus. Verses 18 through 19, if you're still with me, say amen. Verses 18 through 19, some of you, Paul says, have become arrogant, in other words, puffed up, as if I were not coming to you. So some of the Corinthian Christians were so arrogant, they thought that Paul was afraid to visit them. Verse 19, but I will come to you very soon, if the Lord is willing. If the Lord is willing. That's Deo Valente, that's in Greek, the Lord is willing, Deo Valente. And then I will find out not only how these arrogant people are talking, but what power they have. Why is Paul saying this? He's saying this because he's saying this. Hey, man, talk is cheap. Talk is cheap. And he's looking at their lives, and he's saying, man, the power's not there, guys. Okay, whatever power you claim to have, okay, is human, not spiritual. It's carnal. It's, it's, it's manifesting itself in carnality. Okay, you're not matching up. Listen now to the word of God. Look at verse 20. For the kingdom of God, and I love this, is not a matter of talk, okay? But of power, Paul says, but of power. Well, what does that look like? What does that look like? I'll tell you what it looks like. A transformed life. A changed life. Got it? It will be seen, sensed, it will be evident in the lives of those who are truly responding to God and His Word. That's power. That's power. A transformed life is power. And that's what Paul is looking for in these believers, but he can't find it. He says, man, you're all talk. You all talk. Question. Can people see how your life has changed? Can people see the transformation in your life? Because that's power. 
when they see transformation in your life, when they see that you're different, that you're changed, that's power. That's power. John MacArthur said this, a person's true spiritual character is not determined by the impressiveness of his words, but by the power of his life. The contrast, the correction, the call, number four, our final point is the challenge. Write that down, the challenge, the challenge, the challenge. And here Paul concludes this part with a strong, confronting challenge. A strong, confronting challenge. Look at verse 21 with me. I'm loving this. Aren't you loving this? But it is hitting home, isn't it? Verse 21. What do you prefer? Shall I come to you with a whip or in love and with a gentle spirit? So what Paul does, Paul leaves the ball in their court. And what Paul is saying to them is, hey, man, which Paul do you want? Tell me, he says, which Paul do you want? Do you want the tough Paul or the tender Paul? Do you want the Paul Paul with the rod of correction or do you want the Paul with the spirit of gentleness. Which one do you want? It's a challenge he's given them. Now, now, there's no doubt in my mind that Paul would prefer to come in the spirit of gentleness, but, but he'll leave that decision up to them. It's in their court. It's a challenge. Now, you probably heard this saying, and, and I love the saying. It says, preachers are to comfort the afflicted, but sometimes to afflict the comfortable. Preachers are to comfort the afflicted, but sometimes to afflict the comfortable. And here, Paul is afflicting those who are too comfortable in their walk. They're, they're, they're stuck. They're comfortable in, in their pride. And what I love about Paul, that he was able to, listen, confront them, to afflict them. Why? Because he was a true shepherd. He was a, a loving spiritual father. And because he loved them, he would correct them and rebuke them. 2 Timothy 4.2, 2 Timothy 4.2, Paul says, preach the word, be prepared in season, in season and out of season. He says, correct, rebuke, and encourage. Correct and rebuke and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. Martin Luther said this, a preacher must be both a soldier and a shepherd. He must nourish, defend, and teach He must have teeth in his mouth and be able to bite and fight. Say pride. Say pride. Listen, friends, pride is a terrible thing. Pride is a terrible thing in the life of a Christian. Pride is a terrible thing in the life of the church. And it needs to be rooted out It needs to be dealt with. It has no place in our lives. It has no place in the life of the church. So so quickly, quickly, uh, I want to give you some practical steps, practical steps, excuse me, steps on how to do that. Eight practical steps. Real quick here, okay? Step number one is this. Understand God. Understand God. This is how we root out and we deal with pride. Understand God. Now, now, God is holy. His wisdom is infinite. His, his glory is, is never-ending. His, his goodness is unsearchable. He works all things according to the counsel of His will, right? Therefore, there is no one in all of creation that compares to Him. He's God. We're not. He's great. He's awesome. He's God. We're not, friends. And you know what? We, we are the only creatures in existence that are prideful enough to disobey God. Friends, pride often comes from a view of God that is too low. And I want to tell you, in order to root out pride, friends, to root out pride, okay, in order to do that, we need the right view of God. We need to, listen, reverence God for who He is. We need to see God as God He's God and we're not. Amen? So, understand God. The the second step is this. Understand ourselves. Understand ourselves. 
write that down, understand ourselves. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, Paul tells us what we were B.C., before Christ. And he says this, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Man, this is heavy. In which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of the flesh, of our flesh, and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Hey, Listen, we were hopeless and helpless, living according to the world, Paul says, following Satan and living to satisfy our own desires, but our hearts were changed. Someone say amen. Our hearts were changed. God made us alive so that he could display the riches of his grace in us. And you see, this leaves no room for pride. Got it? Pride often comes from either thinking of ourselves to be higher than we are or thinking God to be lower than he is. Understand God. Understand ourselves. Got it? And the third step is don't think highly of ourselves. Write that down. Don't think highly of Ourselves, Friends, no matter how high our, educa- our education level is or how much money that you and I have in the bank or what we've accomplished, that should never make us think that we are, listen, better or more important than anyone else. Listen, the more blessings we have received, the humbler we should be. I'm going to say it again. The more blessings we have received, the humbler we should should be. You ever notice the more a fruit tree branch has, the lower it is, the lower it hangs. The more blessings we have received, the humbler we should be. Understand God, understand ourselves. Okay, don't think highly of ourselves. And the fourth step is consider others more important. Consider others more important. Philippians 2.3, right? Philippians 2.3, we know this, right? Do nothing out of selfish ambition. Paul, the same writer is writing this, or vain conceit, but in humility. There's that word, in humility, consider others as more important than yourselves. This doesn't mean to think less of yourself, but to think of yourself less. Question, how often... How often do you go out of your way to serve others? Let me ask you this. How often, friends, do you give up your agenda? Okay, give up your agenda. How often do you step outside of your agenda to meet the needs of others? Huh? You see, humility allows me to see the needs of others because I'm not up here high in pride. Humility allows me to think of others. Pride just focuses on my own needs. In fact, how do you spell pride? P-R-I-D-E. What's the middle letter? Is is I, me, myself, and, and I. So as I humble myself, I will see the needs of others. Got it? The fifth step is repent. Repent, understand God, understand ourselves. Don't think highly of ourselves. Consider others more important and repent. Repent from pride. Repent, listen now, from feeling the need to announce our achievements to others. Repent from being unwilling to consider or accept godly rebuke. Repent from correcting people in order to assert dominance rather than to edify them. Repent, friends, from comparing ourselves to others. Repent from recognizing sin without turning from it. Repent from refusing to admit imperfection in our lives. 
Paul said this. Paul said this in Galatians 6, 3. Galatians chapter 6, verse 3. It's sobering, okay? For if anyone considers himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Bang. Right there. Step number six is serve others. Serve others. Serve others. Step number six, serve others. Okay, don't, don't wait to be served like, like we're royalty, like we're all that. Okay, we need to be willing to serve anyone, especially those who are less privileged than us. I mean, Jesus, I mean, even Jesus, right? The God in the flesh, even Jesus washed the feet of his disciples. And there, there Jesus demonstrated servanthood, not just servanthood, but humility. He humbled himself. Step number six is pray. 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 Ask for the help of the Holy Spirit to change our hearts to change us from being selfish to selfish, self-centered, self-absorbed, self-focused to becoming selfless, others-focused, and Christ-centered. Understand God, understand ourselves. Don't think highly of ourselves. Consider others more important. Repent, serve others, pray. And finally, the eighth step is, here we go, meditate. You got it? On God's word. Meditate on God's word. This is the most necessary part of, of rooting out pride, of dealing with pride, because it's the foundation upon which all of these other steps must be accomplished. Now, if you're saved, say amen. Can't hear you. If you're saved, say amen. Listen, God's word, if you're saved, listen now, if you said amen, God's word tells us all that we need to know about him, and not just about him, but about ourselves. His word is the only accurate mirror that will show us who we really are. And that's that old saying, right? When you read, when you read God's word, actually the word of God reads you reads me. You see, God's word is not dead. It's alive. It's living and active, right? His word is not dead or inactive. And when we, when we read it and believe it, we're being sanctified by the word. In other words, we're being changed, transformed, made pure, friends. You see, God gave, his, gave us his word so that we could be made into righteous, complete people. To transform us. He gave us his word not just for information, but for transformation. 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 through 18. 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 18. Paul writes, All scripture is inspired by God. God breathed and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness so that the man or the woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now, as I close, I, I, want, to, I want to, to say, to, to, I want to uh, tell you what Nofel Staten said regarding pride. And he was a theologian, and he wrote this regarding pride. We feed pride into our system when we continue to pump ourselves up with a bunch of self-centered hot air. Pride has several devastating results, all of which interfere with the fellowship into which God has called us. Pride cuts ourselves off from God. For who needs God if we are self-sufficient within ourselves? Pride cuts ourselves off from others. For who needs to be dependent upon others if in our pride we are independent? Pride cuts ourselves from ourselves. For it does not permit us, permit us, excuse me, permit us to face accurately our own self-evaluation. Pride cuts ourselves off from service. No wonder God hates pride. And no wonder 
we read in his word that pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, might we understand the seriousness of pride and the, and the damage that it can do in our lives and in the life of the church. And might we confront it and, and root it out, Father, of our lives and, and never forget that you hate pride and that you oppose the proud, but Lord, you give grace to the humble. And Father, I pray that as Christians, as followers of your kingdom, that humility ought to flow from the knowledge that all we have has been given to us by you because of your grace, not because we deserved it or because we earned it. It was all given to us by your grace. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Listen, there's someone out there who's listening and you know, you're, you're feeling a, a tug at your heart. That's the God himself through his spirit calling you to himself. And if you want to follow Jesus, if you want to be saved today, we want to give you the opportunity to do that. And if that's you, I want you to bow your head and close your eyes and repeat this prayer after me. Uh, dear Jesus, uh, I admit that I'm a sinner and I invite you to come into my life to wash me, to cleanse me, to change me, and to save me. I confess with my mouth that you are Lord, and I believe within my heart that God raised you from the dead. I am saved, sealed, sanctified, satisfied, justified, purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. I am born again. And from this day forth, I will follow you until you call me home. Thank you, Jesus, for saving my life. In your name I pray. Amen. So if you said that prayer, we would love to hear from you. And you can email us at contact at cryout.org. That's contact at cryout.org. So I hope you all... Uh, enjoy the message, and I pray that you would have a blessed day, and I will see you next week. God bless, and take care.